Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event in conversation with Sir David Norgrove, live from the Institute for Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, associate here at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to hear Sir David's reflections on his five years as chair of the UK Statistics Authority. Before we get underway, a few pieces of virtual housekeeping. If you'd like to get involved on social media, you can use hashtag IFG Norgrove, and we're live tweeting the event at IFG Events. For the first half an hour or so, I'll be putting some questions to Sir David, but for the second half of the event, I'll be putting your questions to him. You can submit those via Slido. Uh, there should be something on the screen that you're currently watching us on. If for some reason you're not watching us on Slido and you're watching us on YouTube instead, you can go to the event page on the Institute for Government website and find the Slido link there. Turning to our guest today, Sir David Norgrove has been chair of the UK Statistics Authority for five years now. The authority is the non-ministerial department that oversees the UK statistical system, which encompasses the Office for National Statistics, the Office for Statistics Regulation, and the Government Statistical Service. His term as chair comes to an end later this month. Sir David started his career as an economist at the Treasury, taking a few years out to work at a Chicago bank, before becoming private secretary to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. He then spent 16 years at Marks & Spencer, becoming a member of the board. After leaving m and in 2004, he became the first chair of the Pensions Regulator, then chair of the Low Pay Commission, and then chair of a government review of the family justice system before becoming the inaugural chair of the Family Justice Board, tasked with implementing the findings of his review. He was knighted for services to the low paid and family justice in 2016. His five-year term has taken in the small matter of the 2021 census, a global pandemic that brought data and statistics to the heart of government decision-making like never before, the use of statistics in some highly charged political debates, and continued technological change. I'm not sure an hour will be enough to get through all of that, uh, but we will certainly try our best. So David, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Pleasure. Wonderful to welcome you. Um, before we get to your reflections um, on your term as chair of the UKSA, I wondered if you could talk about how you came to the role. What, what inspired you to apply for and accept it in the first place? Uh, well, I've always been a user of statistics and interested in them. And in fact, I can remember uh, being in the Treasury in, in the early 70s and toddling down the corridor with a stack of punch cards to the CSO computer and dropping them on the floor on the way. Um, but um, what really got me to it was the family justice. Um, I mean, we spend a huge amount of money on caring for children who've been abused and neglected, um, dealing with people who've been divorced and, and helping them or sometimes harming them, um, and at a huge emotional and uh, cost and, and difficulty. Um, and yet we know very little about the outcomes for the children who pass through the family justice system. So one of the things I wanted to do was to do some work joining up education data, income data, um, with family justice data and other sources of data to track people through their lives to see what effect different ways of handling them had had on outcomes. And this turned out to be an absolute nightmare, as I think you probably know, I would guess. Um, so I was very interested to try to come to UKSA to see what I could do to help join up government data so we could begin to answer that kind of question. 
Excellent. Is that something that you've been able to do as chair of the UKSA? Has, has that moved forward over the last five years? We've made progress. We're not there yet. And, but I am grateful to the government who've given us 180 million over three years to build an integrated data service to serve as a platform for doing just what I've described. Excellent. I'm sure we'll come back to the integrated data Absolutely. service shortly. <laughs> um, I was looking back through your pre-appointment hearing. Um, the chair of the UKSA is one of those roles which has to be sort of rubber stamped by a select committee at, at the start. And some of the discussion was around the different roles of the chair of the UKSA. Some of it was about uh, being a regulator. Some of it was about being a cheerleader um, for statistics in the statistical system. How would you characterise your role in your five years as, as chair? Well, it's all of those things. It's, it's about governance, of course, uh, and making sure that the organisation is functioning effectively. I mean, ONS is 5,500 people. OSR is only 40 people. But nevertheless, you've got to run these things properly. So there is a governance aspect. And the board, and I as chair of the board, act as, in effect, the minister for ONS. Um, so that's a very, very you know, necessary part of the job. But beyond that, it's helping to set the strategy uh, with uh, the guidance and support of the executive team, and then to make sure that we deliver it, as well as, of course, looking after public money. Of course, yes. <laughs> always very important. And um, one of the other things that came up in that pre-appointment hearing, some of the committee members had long been concerned that the role of the UKSA was sort of, there was a tension there between being, as you described, the sort of governor um, and of, of something that was producing statistics, but also then the regulator of mm. the statistics being produced. Has that been a tension that you've found over the last five years in, in the role, and how have you sort of managed that? Well, uh, you know, people have worried about that in the past. Um, not something that really has concerned me very much. I'm clear that, um, that if, if, there, if there ever were to be a conflict between OSR and ONS, or other statistical areas, OSR, the regulatory side, takes precedence. Um, I mean, people tend to think of it as a bit of a zero-sum game in the way that, say, off-gem, you know, if you're determining, or off-what, if you're determining the rate of return for a company that you're regulating, it's a, kind of, a zero-sum game as between you and the consumers that you represent. So um, that isn't the case in statistics, if you think about it both the producers of statistics and the regulators have the same objective, which is statistics that serve the public good. I mean, conceivably, you would get a case where ONS or somebody does something that's, that's wrong and the board should have picked it up and then tried to protect their own backs. I've never come across that. Good. Let's hope the same is true of your successor as well. <laughs> um, in the five years that you, you've had as chair, what do you think the main achievements of the UKSA have been? And personally, what, what are the, the sort of things that you're most proud of? What wouldn't have happened um, had you not been there? Well, I'm not going to claim personal credit for anything. I mean, this is a, a team effort, but we stopped pre-release access to, for, for ministers and officials to ONS statistics. And I think that was a well worth thing, a really good thing to have done. It undermined the trust that ministers and officials saw statistics before the public did. Um, so I'm pleased about that. I'm pleased that we've tackled, without having resolved it, the future of the RPI. Mm. Um, so I think that's important. But mostly it's about the development of, of 
statistics during COVID. Um, and we no doubt come to that. We've delivered a, a successful census and we'll be publishing that in early summer. But I think above all, it's about attitudes. You know, we've continued in the last five years to become much more outward looking. Um, when I first joined ONS, I remember going to see the governor of the Bank of England and he criticized us for publishing a commentary on the numbers at the same time as we were publishing them. Um, and, uh, and now we have people appearing on the Today program. So a much more outward looking and engaged and active um, set of statisticians, not just people who sit in a back room giving out the numbers. And with a much more active communication role, what's sort of, how has the UKSA, how have the ONS adapted to that? How have they put the things in place to help people uh, communicate? Well, a stronger them? communications function, mm. but also making, giving much more attention to how they're presented so people don't have to do so much work to understand them. Um, and perhaps we'll come on to this, but if there are certain sets of statistics, like crime, for example, that if people can get hold of the wrong end of the stick, they will. Um, so it's about presenting them with absolute clarity so they can't get hold of the wrong end of the stick. You've mentioned ONS and OSR and GSS a little bit. How would you characterise the work that you've done with that sort of wider statistical system? So not just the, the ONS and OSR in particular, but statisticians working across government, central and local government, and parliament as well. How have you sort of seen your relationship with, with those organisations? Well, we don't have control over statisticians outside ONS, but we do have influence. And I think uh, I and the national, two national statisticians I've worked with have worked very hard to try to raise the status of statisticians. You know, the world has been run by economists up till now, and I think one of the things that's happened over the last two or three years is statisticians are taken much more seriously. Um, one final thing from your pre-appointment hearing before we move on to um, some other subjects. Um, you said what you think from the outside of an organisation often looks quite different when you're on the inside and you can actually talk to the customers and to the producers of the statistics. I think that was you being asked if you had a grand plan when you yeah. were coming in. What surprised you most about being on the inside compared to being on the outside? I think the sheer quantity of stuff. I mean, I wasn't surprised about the quality and the dedication of the people. You know, the, the, the statisticians around government want to do the right thing. They really want to try to help people make better decisions um, and help public understanding. And there's a sort of integrity there, which I think is, is admirable. What I hadn't realized was quite how many thousands of data sets ONS is producing, well, and other government departments you know, every year. I mean, I think we, before the pandemic, we produced 700 press releases. Um, I think during the pandemic, we were producing 1,400 press releases a year. But, and we don't press release a lot of the data we produce, so you know, vast numbers of vast output. You, um, you were a civil servant in the 70s and 80s, a professional economist in the Treasury, then in their central policy unit, then working um, for the Prime Minister. How do you think the civil service and government has changed most in that time, particularly in its relationship with data and statistics? Well, I think people have far more data available to them now than they ever did before. Um, and they take it more seriously, I think. I mean, it's a much more numbers-driven culture than it was when I first joined the Treasury. Um, whether it leads to, that leads to better decisions or not, 
you know, it's very hard to judge, but I would say that's the biggest change in that sense. And government in, in general, what does it what, what, what does it look like now compared to when, when you were in the Treasury? It, it, it feels, well, the, the external environments, of course, have changed in the sense of scrutiny through the media, through social media particularly. Um, the sort of pressure, the day-to-day -day pressure on politicians, I think, has increased enormously. Um, but the other thing that strikes me is how much more complicated decision-making processes have got. Um, many more special advisors, special units, the role of number 10 has changed, and it's quite hard to see now the, process, the, the hierarchy of, by which a decision is made. And as Sue Gray talked in her report about the complexity of the management of number 10, I think the same thing applies to government more generally. And how, how as the UKSA do you try to navigate that complex? Management? Well, fortunately, we don't have to that much, or at least I don't have to so much because we, have, we are independent. So we, we can you know, paddle our own canoe to a large extent. There is only one data set that the government has any control over, which the ONS produces anyway, which is the RPI, mm. which is prescribed in legislation, and that's one of the things that's been particularly complicated to deal with. But other than that, we do our own thing. Uh, it, does, it is complicated in terms of appointments, for example, that can get that can become a pain in the neck. I think we may come to that <laughs> again shortly. Yes. Um, we've mentioned the pandemic in, in passing. Obviously, that's been that's dominated the last couple of years of, of your tenure as chair. What was the pandemic experience like from, from your perspective? Well, uh, I think in the end, we, as the government and supported by a statistician hit, hit, hit some nails on the head, but there was quite a lot of fumbling for the hammer. Yeah, so it took some weeks to get going. More cock-up than conspiracy, I think. But ONS lent some people to number 10, so the presentation of data improved. Um, and pretty quickly, both ONS and statisticians responded to both the need to change the way they did exi produced existing data series because of the difficulty of surveys, for example, but also developed new data series to help us understand the pandemic better. And the COVID infection survey was perhaps the most obvious of those, but all sorts of other surveys to look at how people were responding, um, whether that's looking at you know, whether people were buying alcohol after the pub shut at 10 o'clock um, in loft licenses through to why, why haven't we got so many over 50s in the labor force. What do you think are the key lessons that politicians in particular, but government more generally, should take from the, the data experience and the statistics experience during the pandemic? I think recognising earlier the importance of data and putting in place a team of people who are empowered to make decisions about collecting the data um, in a way that, um, of course, they'll be influenced and shaped by the political process, but that in this case, if that had happened quicker, we would have got to grips with it quicker. Um, and I think having somebody in that who's a controlling mind who can make a decision, who can knock heads together, because particularly in health in this country, very complicated structures, there was a lot of toing and froing that was unnecessary. 
you've actually preempted my next question, which was, I think you wrote to um, the Public Administration Select Committee saying that there probably was a need for a firmer central control in mind when it came to trying to, to do some of that coordination of statistics. How, how do you think that should look in practice? Where should the National Statistician or, or the UKSA sit in that? And what, where do you think the political involvement or the opposition to such a system might be? Well, I think it should be the national statistician. Uh, he or she would be the obvious person to take that responsibility on board, and they should have the relevant people reporting to them. Uh, but there are always going to be bureaucratic um, sort of hesitations about that. Uh, but I think in any crisis, you do need much firmer governance of, well, every aspect of, of these. I mean, and we saw it in the Second World War, actually, which led to the creation of what became the ONS. Um, and we, we, we should have had that during the pandemic. You mentioned the COVID infection survey, which um, I think was remarkably stood up within the space of about a week yeah. um, by ONS. And I think you've said that it sets the standard and is respected around the world and would hope that it continues in, in yeah, some it, form. It is going to continue. Because there has been some recent discussion that the funding might be cut or it might not be there in, in quite the same way. So I was wondering if you had any, any perspective on that. Yes, yeah, so it's been announced today, hot off the press, that um, it's continuing with a sample size that's about three quarters of the original, but carried out in a more cost-effective way using online and post more than face-to-face. -face. But we're confident that it'll still produce worthwhile results. Excellent. Speaking of um, collecting sort of older data sets in new ways and using a mix of online and surveys, the census. Yes. <laughs> uh, what was it like um, from, from your perspective with the 2021 census being run in the middle of a pandemic? Well, fortunately, it was, it was not at one of the peak periods. So we had to observe all the, but we still had to observe all the sort of rules around um, uh, you know, social distancing and so on. The big saving grace was the proportion of people who filled it in online. So we had a target of 75% filling it in online, 89% filled it in online. So yeah, in that sense, the pandemic was, uh, didn't affect the collection of the data. And what's it like to oversee something as iconic, I suppose, as, as, as a census? I mean, if, if something were to go wrong, we've seen it in New Zealand where the national statistician um, had to leave their job as a result of it not going well. What, what's yeah. it like to have that sort of responsibility and that oversight? Well, it had its sweaty moments. <laughs> there were you know, times when it looked as if the, the technology wouldn't work quite as we'd hoped, but some very, very able people went above and beyond um, and, and delivered it successfully. Um, it, it actually was my predecessor and Ian Diamond's predecessor, I think, took a, a very important decision, which was to bring much more of it in-house. Mm -hmm. Up till this census, uh, previous censuses had been sort of parked in off to one side of, of ONS and carried out sort of quasi-independently with most of the work being contracted out. Uh, John Pullinger and Andrew Dilnot took the decision to bring it in-house. And that meant that the investments in IT um, and other resources were then retained in-house, and that expertise was kept in-house, and has actually helped and contributed to the, the more effective ONS that we've seen in the last few years. So long-term planning was, was sort of vital. And 
again, there's been a lot of discussion about the future of the census, that this may be the, the last census um, in its sort of current form, whether there are new data sources that can be used to give a, a, a sort of more of a running census almost. Have you got any views on what the future of the census should look like or what you think it could look like? Well, I hope this is the last census because in today's world, it, it's not acceptable to have data that are absolutely accurate once every 10 years. Um, and I cringe when I read about uh, a, a school that's swamped with children uh, because there isn't enough provision. You know, I think we should blame ourselves in ONS when that happens, that we, don't, we aren't providing up-to-date figures. Um, and we ought to be able to provide much more regular figures based on, on bringing together administrative data. Um, and so we've had a team over the last few years working on replicating the census um, and producing most of the outputs of the census on a regular basis that we can then compare with the census and see how far they're adrift. At the moment, mostly it looks promising. Um, but there are one or two things like, for example, um, uh, job descriptions, employment uh, descriptors that we aren't collected anywhere in in government at the moment, so there may have to be other changes. But we ought to be producing a census once a month. You know, that's the objective. Um, and, and we're reasonably confident that it can be done, but it will need some tweaks to other things as well. That probably leads us quite nicely into something we've already mentioned in passing, which is the integrated data service or mm. program or platform. Um, what would you like to say a little bit about that and how you see it developing? Yeah. I mean, over the past few years, um, ONS and indeed other departments have started to bring together data sets to answer questions that haven't been able to be answered before. So um, there's LEO, the Long-Term Educational Outcomes data set, where Department for Education and HMRC brought uh, two data sets together so that you can look at any university course and say what people were earning, were earning five years later. So you could compare reading law at Reading with reading law at Bristol and see what... It, no, that may or may not be useful, but I think it is, is useful. Um, but that's a start, and ONS have been using data from HMRC, for example, to produce much better figures on employment and incomes. Um, the next stage is to create this platform, the Integrated Data Service, which is a kind of Google for a sort of Google for government data. So you can bring together data sets that are uh, linked at individual level and anonymized um, so that people can answer questions that they couldn't answer before, like the one I started with. I mean, what happens to children who are taken into care and then either end up in foster homes or or end up being uh, adopted. Well, what's the difference? Mm. Um, and that platform is now being built. It will be available to accredited researchers as well as to people within government. Um, and I think it has the potential to transform the way we think about the way that government interacts with citizens. Um, my mantra is you can't have joined up government without having joined up data because it's only through joined up data that you can see the effect of one department's policies on another department. 
uh, and its policies. Um, so that is being built, and we've got the first public beta later this year. Um, and I think it, yeah, I'm, I'm confident it'll be successful uh, in technical terms. And the issue will be, do people have the imagination to use it effectively? That's going to be the big thing, because we'll suddenly be able to answer these or ask these big cross-government questions. But you've got to think cross-government if you're going to ask the questions about cross-government. Um, and people at the moment tend to think in silos. Mm. I mean, it should at least remove the excuse that the data isn't there yes. for people. Um, I think you've described it as you know, this being the beginning of a revolution in using administrative data, but also that that's going to lead to technical, political and ethical challenges. Obviously, a lot of the data that you've mentioned is quite sensitive, even if it is um, pseudonymized or anonymized. What do you think those big technical, political, ethical challenges are likely to be, and how can government mitigate those? Well, the technical challenges are you know, beyond my pay grade, really. I mean, they are about how you bring these very complicated data sets together and hold them securely, um, and data sets that were not designed in the first place to be brought together, so they've got different identifiers and sometimes different spellings of people's names and all those kinds of things. Um, the political and ethical challenges, I mean, you could imagine a kind of <coughs> dystopian vision where people have done the analysis and um, you know, knock on the door on number 31 and say, you know, Mrs. Smith, the computer says that you're likely to be abusing your child. Um, I mean, that's an extreme, but you can see the potential to head in that direction. And that's why um, we've created the National Statisticians Ethics Advisory Group that will look at what research projects are carrying out, carried out and approved them for external people and internally similar processes. How do you think the public should be involved in some of those decisions about how their data is being used and to help build trust about some of that sensitive data? What we have to show is it helps them, that it helps their lives, that it, it, keeping this stuff hugger-mugger um, will cause mistrust. And it's vital that we're completely transparent and explain exactly what's being done with people's data and why it will help them. Excellent, thanks. And we'll be coming to audience questions shortly, so please do submit them via Slido. I do have a few more that I want to squeeze in um, quickly. Um, one is about politicians and how they use statistics. I think one of yeah. your probably most visible roles as chair of the UKSA is occasionally having to write letters to politicians yeah. when they, they may not be using statistics in the most wholesome of ways. Yeah. I mean, what, what's your sort of perspective on how politicians tend to use data and statistics and whether you writing to them has, has an effect on that? Well, you asked me earlier whether I was surprised about things. I mean, actually, I've been surprised at how little I've written to politicians of, of all stripes, not how much. Um, I think on the whole, our politicians use, well, they, we know that they, you know, government departments and politicians use vast quantities of, of uh, published vast quantities of numbers, um, and they're used in lots of speeches. And actually, on the whole, they're, they're, there's no criticism. I think it, they, actually our politicians get a bum rap in terms of, of um, their use of numbers. I, I think on the whole, it's pretty good. Um, I mean, the other thing I'd say is that it was our politicians who created this structure of an independent statistical system 
run by people who can criticize them. I think that's, I don't know of any other country that allows that. I mean, it is pretty extraordinary that our politicians have created a structure that has one of its object or one of its functions is to criticize them. I think, I mean, some of the more prominent examples, and again, as you say, there may not be as many as people expect, but there was the Department of Health um, and some of its sort of testing data. I think you yeah. wrote to then Matt Hancock at the end of April, and it took yeah. until August for them to, to, take the, to, to take the action that had been desired. I think the Prime Minister has been written to a few times about the way he talks about employment statistics. Yeah. Should there be other sanctions available when those incidents do happen that go beyond letter writing? What, you mean locking them up? <laughs> no, no. You're no, it's not. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, it's appropriate for a, a public body like, like ours to criticise, and then it's up to politicians to make the decision of what they do with that criticism. But my experience has been that they take these criticisms very seriously. And I think... Uh, in virtually all cases, um, the politicians have responded constructively, and in many cases, I've had a call from the relevant minister, or uh, not necessarily minister, person in the opposition, or in the Scottish National Party, or whoever, to say, I'm sorry, um, we'll do it better next time, or to try to discuss it, but then it doesn't happen again. I think, on the whole, they've responded well. Thank you. Um, a couple of final questions about, this, I suppose, the future of the UK SA uh, before we go to the audience. Obviously, the, the process to appoint your successor is currently underway. Mm. What do you think the UK, SA, the UK SA needs from a chair? What sort of characteristics should the government be looking for? And what advice would you give your successor? I don't give my successor advice. They're never, never welcome. But I think a, 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 um, an interest in statistics an interest in governance, um, a, a willingness to stand up for statistics and for propriety in statistics. Those are among the things I think are important. And something that they'll have to be thinking about um, in the not too distant future is the, um, the sort of next national statistician or renewing Ian Diamond's term, whichever it ends up being. And um, obviously when um, Sir Ian was, was appointed, um, it was quite a difficult um, process in, in, in many mm. respects. What more do you think could be done to make sure that there's a, a sort of pipeline of those statistical leaders coming through government so hopefully the next uh, application process isn't as challenging as the last one? I think it's about raising the status of statistician government. Um, it's likely that the national statistician uh, will come from within government, I would think, uh, if and when Ian leaves. Um, I mean, Ian didn't come from within government, but... Um, that was unusual. The important thing is to raise the status of statisticians, to have more senior statisticians within government, because on the whole, they tend to be less senior within government than economists, so that they get the management experience and the political exposure that, that you need, because the national statistician has a... It's an unusual mix where you've got to be professionally credible in statistics. You've got to be able to manage a, a large organisation, 5,500 people, and you've got to have that external credibility. So it's quite a job. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn now to some questions from the audience. Um, again, please do keep them coming via Slido. Um, we've got quite a few on, on topics we've already covered. So um, 
sort of somebody anonymous says the Prime Minister shows disdain for any institution that can constrain or criticise the government. Um, so is there anything that can be done to change that from, from the UKSA point of view, which I think we already mm. talked about. Um, Tom King um, asks, and this is something that we, we touched on, but it'd be good to explore it in a bit more detail. Um, the, the sort of whole CPI, RPI uh, issue. RPI was deprecated before you started um, in your role. So why does the government still choose to use it? And will your successor resolve the issue within the next five years? Well, I don't know that. Um, I mean, the RPI is used because it's part of the... Um, it's linked to... Uh, it is the basis for index-linked guilt. Um, we propose to bring the methods of CPI into... CPIH into RPI. Um, the government decided not to do that at this stage, but to... Uh, allow us, in effect, to make the decision in 2030 when the relevant index-linked guilts have been redeemed. Um, but it's now before the courts. There's a judicial review. Um, it remains to be seen whether that will be feasible in 2030. Excellent. Thanks. Um, we've got a question from Joanna. Will there be a census in 2031, which I think we've also uh, talked about? Yeah. Um, anonymous, um, I, I think maybe Rachel Jordan, asks, um, how do you choose what statistics to collect? So she uses the example, she can't find how many people are bed-bound in the UK. So what sort of role do, does the UKSA play in choosing which statistics? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, a lot of them are prescribed. You know, so there are international conventions um, which prescribe GNP, GDP, employment, all those kinds of things. You'd want to collect them anyway. Um, other than that, it's, first of all, it's listening to people. So that question is an interesting one, which I hope she will take up with Department of Health. I mean, they, produce, they would produce those statistics. Um, it's, so it's listening to people, but it's also thinking, trying to think in advance about what the issues of the day are going to be. Um, and so it was a few years ago that we set up a, a, a centre for inequality um, and equality. And, uh, and that's become the sort of core uh, area of work now in terms of, of levelling up, just a different name for the same thing, really. Um, and uh, so that work was already well in train. How do you do that horizon scanning of trying to understand what the issue is likely to be in five, ten years' time and being prepared for it? Well, it's a mixture of sort of wet towel around the head thinking, but also an awful lot of meeting with people and talking about it. Thanks. Um, Gillian Daly um, says, statistics on social care are rare, particularly in relation to private social care, despite accounting for around 90% of social mm. care. The OSR has warned that statistics on publicly mm. provided care, though collected, cannot be used as a proxy for social care as a whole. When do you think this problem will be rectified? I can't put a date on it. OSR produced an excellent report on it, and I know that the relevant departments are working on a programme to deliver the data, uh, but I can't say when they're going to be ready. Thanks. Um, Anonymous asks, I think Anonymous has been looking at my notes as well, because this was on my list of questions, what do you think the future holds for the UKSA? Do you anticipate any big changes over the next 10 years or so? Uh, and they say whether that's for the OSR or, or the ONS as well. Well, I think, I, I hope and believe that the legislative structure won't change. It seems to me that that works well. Um, the issues are going to be around... Uh, 
the role of UKSA, OSR, and indeed ONS, as we move more into integrated data, one, but also much more modeling and artificial intelligence. Um, in a way, they're all kinds of statistical models. I mean, even individual statistics are often modeled, so there's a modeling element to them. Um, and at the moment, government is, a, is um, in a, not disarray, but there's a, a lack of clarity about who and how is that's going to be done. The sort of management, the regulation of, of uh, much more sophisticated statistics. OSR has begun to move into that space in a, in a way through, for example, the work that um, we did on, on the exams fiasco of a couple of years ago and the algorithm. Um, but that's going to get much more important in the coming years. Um, at the moment, what we're doing is saying that um, models uh, need to be transparent. You know, people need to say what their assumptions are and what their data sources are. What assumptions they make, what choices they make is for them. Uh, but I think this is just the beginning and it may be that things will develop further into a more interventionist role. Great, thank you. Um, anonymous, another anonymous, might be the same one, who knows, um, says you spoke about the media-facing role statisticians have taken, particularly over the past two years, but they, they've not seen you on the, on the television and radio circuit in quite the same way. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I don't produce the numbers. Yeah, I'm not executive, and it's, it, it would be wrong for me to be on the airwaves talking about the numbers. That's, that's the role of the executive. Thanks. Um, Anonymous asks, on a score out of 10, how would you rate A, progress on linking departmental data, and B, progress on linking rich independent survey data, so those run by universities, for instance, with administrative data? Well, I, on the first, I'd give us a six. You know, there's a long way to go, particularly with some of the key data sets from DWP and HMRC and then establishing the conditions uh, that they can be used, what, what kinds of things they can be used for and how they can be used. Um, we're making progress, but we're not there yet, so it's a six. Um, in terms of bringing in data from outside, and I, I, I don't just include um, their surveys, but we're just starting, for example, to use scanner data from supermarkets to mm. deliver price um, estimates. Uh, inflation data. Um, there's, and we've used uh, data from uh, cameras, you know, CCTV on streets to look at numbers of people on the street and how people are responding to the end of lockdown. But it's just the beginning, so I'd give that a one. Crikey, long, a long way to go. Yes. <laughs> um, thinking about some of those new forms of data collection techniques or those you know, data being produced by sort of external providers, are there additional ethical and political and practical challenges to that, and how do you think those can be overcome? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly practical challenges, and people tend to think of administrative data, this applies to government data as well as to, um, as well as to private sector data, as if they're perfect, you know, because you're getting 100% of whatever the data are, but they're collected for an administrative purpose, and so they're not necessarily perfect. They're collected for that purpose, and they, you're wanting to use them often for a different purpose. Um, and then they might change them. They might change the way that the data are collected 
to suit the administration. So then you need to know about that, and that affects the quality of your data series. So there's all those kinds of practical issues um, and get you know, the expense of setting up the data feeds and all those kinds of things, and who's going to pay for that? So those, those are the practical questions. But, but then you're, the question is anonymous is right. There are going to be ethical issues about that, particularly around, and we're, you know, we're very concerned about this, um, producing data and analysis that's flexible for people to use, but not so that they could identify the individual. Because the more localized the data, because one of the things we've got to do is make data more local, um, is you don't want to, uh, you know, to be able to identify a software engineer with a beard who lives in number five. Is there a, I mean, is, is there a risk of you know, some data that might come from those private sources ending up with an ONS logo on them at some point or being on ONS systems and, and therefore carrying the reputation of the ONS but having some quite serious problems behind it that risks that reputation. Yeah, I mean, that is a risk. But um, ONS does a great deal of work to quality assure the data before it uses it. So, for example, in using scanner data, we're having a long period of dual running of integration before those data are, are go live, really, in, in, looking at, uh, in producing inflation data. Thanks. Um, another question from Anonymous. Uh, what do you see as the role for statistics in Parliament? Um, they say, at least to the casual observer, uh, numbers seem to be used incorrectly and not corrected more regularly than five years ago. I, 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 haven't, I can't say whether or not that's the case. I mean, I, the House of Commons Library, I think, does a brilliant job in supporting MPs uh, with their research inquiries and the data that they ask for. Um, ONS is putting a lot of effort into um, local data so that an MP can define um, their constituency, for example, or part of their constituency, and find out about their, their area, um, sort of self-defined geographical areas. Um, in terms of the quality of, of, um, of, of the way that data are used, uh, there is now a, a module um, a modular approach to helping people understand data and statistics that people can go onto the website and, 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 and try. Actually, I've done it. I thought it was rather good. So I hope MPs will use that too. Excellent. Um, another anonymous question. You mentioned joined up government a few times, but some parts of the UK system, devolved administrations, some local authorities, etc., have a desire not to join up with Westminster government. I'm sure it probably works the other way as well. Um, does your strategy rub up against that in any awkward ways? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's certainly an issue. Um, you know, different administrations do things differently, and that causes issues statistically. So, for example, um, I remember um, Mrs May getting into trouble over uh, A&E waiting times. Um, and actually, her claim was wrong because Wales defines A&E waiting times differently from England, um, which is a pity because having different administrations do different things, do things differently is, gives a natural kind of experiment that we can all learn from. And if you can't measure the effectiveness of these different experiments, then you lose something. But on the other hand, administrative data are bound to relate to the way that that particular administration does things. I mean, the way... There's no easy answer to that, but there is a concordat between the 
devolved administrations in Westminster, uh, which is overseen by the national statistician, about work to bring statistics together and create greater coherence. Um, and there's an inter-administration committee that meets month once a month to think about these issues and to try to bring the data together. So yes, it's an issue, but people are working on it. You've also preempted another question that I had on my list, which is that sort of devolution as a natural experiment and an opportunity to see innovative things happening. Yeah. Have you seen much of that um, in your five years as, as chair as well? A bit. I mean, I'm not as close to it as, as I would need to be to be able to say that, but I've certainly seen it in health, for example. Uh, the, the Welsh example is, is one. Um, different ways of handling A&E. Um, but I, I can't say I'm, I'm not on top of that one. Um, so anonymous, uh, another anonymous, asks, you can say who you are, honestly, um, asks, who are the people that you've looked to for guidance during your five-year term? Well, I look to my board for guidance. You know, they're a very able bunch of people, and they play a, a big role in this. And also particularly the executives of the two parts of the organisation. Um, but also contacts outside, RSS and others, have, um, have all fed in, really. Richard uh, Fleld asks, statisticians in government sometimes find it challenging to engage meaningfully with a full range of stakeholders or users of the statistics they produce. What do you think are the biggest obstacles and when have you seen it work well? Hmm, interesting question. Well, the biggest obstacles are the biggest obstacles. There's an awful lot of people who use the statistics. I mean, it's quite hard to get to them. But um, ONS, for example, has has several hundred user groups on different aspects of statistics, including you know, some of, and there's a kind of hierarchy of them, um, and then eight or nine that focus on major areas of of statistics. So that's one way in which in which people feed in. Um, I mean, other than that, there are special exercises. OSR plays its part um, in convening groups of people to, when they're reviewing an area of statistics, they will convene groups of people to say what they think is right and wrong about them. Um, where has it worked well? Well, I think it worked well on price statistics, funnily enough. Not everybody agreed. I mean, it's one of those subjects that raises real passions but certainly it was influential to hear from the user group on, on inflation. Thanks. Um, another question from Anonymous. How much government data should be in the public domain? Do the public have access to data that is bad, quote unquote, or not showing the government, and particularly the uh, Department of Health, in a positive light? Well, we make a lot of effort to make sure that all the key statistics are, are publicly available. and. Uh, there is a code of practice for statistics that requires the statistics to be produced in particular ways to particular standards and to be published at a regular pre-arranged time. Now, sometimes there are tensions around that and sometimes people fail, um, but um, it's there and it's certainly, in my experience, very influential. Um, health statistics, though, are a real issue and not through malice, um, but through the sheer complexity of organisations that are, and the number of organisations that are involved in delivering health in the UK. And the result is that they each sometimes produce statistics, and there are gaps. 
you know, it wasn't so long ago, I'm, I'm not even sure we know now exactly how many people are employed in the NHS across the UK, because different areas define the employment differently. Um, uh, so there's a lot of work to be done on health, I think, particularly. Thank you. Claire asks, what are your ideas for how government can improve non-specialist data capability in the civil service? How far can that have an impact on the potential to use data to improve policy making and operational delivery? Well, clearly it's very important and I hope it's part of the training programme of, of everybody coming into the civil service. And as I say, we're delivering now a training package for senior management in the civil service and indeed for ministers. Um, so we started there. And shameless plug that you can find out more about the data masterclasses in one of our previous Databytes events oh, on the IFG website. <laughs> uh, always hustling. Uh, so Rodan asks, what skills do government statisticians possess that are particularly useful when moving into other government roles, for instance, policy work? Well, I think they know what the numbers, you know, they know not to take a number at face value. Um, you know, I think one, that's one of the characteristics and one of the good things of the pandemic is that people have taken the data and don't always trust it. You know, it they ask, where, you know, what, is it, what exactly is this measuring? Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, deaths, COVID deaths, you have to ask, you know, what purpose do you want to know the number of deaths for? Is it the you know, number of people who, who only have COVID mentioned on their death certificate? That's a small number. COVID as an underlying cause, or COVID as a, as a contributing factor. So thinking about the source of the data and its quality, I think is one of the things that a statistician does um, better than anybody else. Excellent. Uh, we've got another question, uh, which is from Anonymous. What role do you see private sector data aggregation platforms playing in government over the next five years? Well, I think uh, government, government doesn't have a monopoly of of wisdom and there are an awful lot of data that private sector holds that are hugely valuable. Now the issue is that very often it's quite partial. So if you think about credit card data, for example, um, MasterCard can do lots of wonderful analysis on its data, but is it biased or unbiased compared to the total if you include Visa and Amex and whoever else? Um, only somebody like ONS can bring the data together um, and do a completely dispassionate, comprehensive piece of analysis. Uh, we've got another question, which is, how do statistics link to freedom of information? Well, uh, people can ask, uh, uh, and they have, uh, through for, for, for numbers through using an FRI request. Um, and actually, um, the other day, there was a lot of publicity around an FOI request, and somebody said, oh, I got this data through an FOI. Well, actually, it was published on the website, and we just gave it to them. <laughs> but so, yes, you can, you, can, you can use FOIs for it, to get data. Great. Um, Anonymous asks, does current practice make government more efficient or complicated, or possibly both, than in the past? Hmm. Well, government has got more complicated, so the data is going to be more are going to be more complicated, and and I'm not sure that welfare goes up, but it's a necessary consequence. It's an inevitable consequence. Would be my answer. Thank you. 
Um, Fiona Brocklehurst says, I understand that one of the difficulties knowing how many people are vaccinated or unvaccinated is knowing how many people are living in the UK. Are there good solutions to this? Well, it's the census. Um, in fact, I think one of the worst examples of statistic, use of statistics during my five years was UK HSA, um, who published a table showing or purporting to show that you're more likely to get COVID if you've been vaccinated. And that was a function of um, wanting to be um, consistent, even if you were wrong, uh, rather than inconsistent and right. Um, and it did a lot of damage. And I think it's still uh, very regrettable that they're publishing this table. Um, but I mean, I blame ourselves partly for that in the, that we only have a census once every 10 years and the numbers get out of date. Um, so it is about the census and then about having more frequent population data. Which hopefully we will start to see at some point. Yes, well, I hope later this year we'll start to see the first fruits of, of um, much more regular population data. Thank you. Um, Anonymous asks, how has ONS's place in the international statistical community changed during your five-year term? Well, I, I, I don't claim credit for it, but I, I think its status is as high as it's ever been. Um, and certainly what we, the feedback we get is, is excellent. Uh, we're seen as, being doing a, as doing a lot of innovative and valuable um, work. Um, so the credibility is high. Uh, Benjamin Kermer asks, what more should be done to free production and dissemination of statistics from political control? Well, I think there's an issue with, there isn't an issue with ONS. ONS is completely free from political control other than the RPI, um, and that will disappear in 2030. Um, so then ONS will be totally free from political control in terms of the statistics it gathers and how it produces them. Um, there can be issues with departments uh, where things get, you know, ad hoc statistics get delayed uh, because it doesn't suit uh, and there's a particular issue, I think, where um, a politician or a press release or an official uses a number that hasn't been published. Uh, and our principle is that if a number is used in public, it's got to be publicly available with its sources and with the caveats and all those things uh, at the same time. So we do a lot of work to put pressure on to ensure that it happens. Um, that it is, I think it is a continuing issue, though, with departments, that some departments are better than others, mm. uh, but some aren't that great. Um, and we need to continue to strive to put the pressure on to make sure that they do the right thing. And the code of practice, which supports the professional statisticians, is hugely valuable in, valuable in that. Because that transparency point has been the subject of quite a few of the letters that you and Ed Humpherson from the OSR have written yeah. to departments, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's been particularly difficult. I mean, I, I have some sympathy with, with our, le our leaders over the last couple of years because the political pressures of the pandemic have been absolutely enormous and almost unprecedented other than in, in wartime. Um, and so the temptation to come out with material uh, must, have been, uh, must have been enormous. So going from one of the, I suppose, the big crises in public life over the last couple of years, the pandemic, to another, which is the, the hostilities, the invasion of Ukraine at the moment, Roger asks, 
Is there any risk of your data being compromised by hacking, which is something of particular concern in light of the current situation? Yeah, I mean, of course there's a risk. I mean, I can't guarantee that nobody would ever get into our systems. There's no, nobody could ever guarantee that with any system. Uh, all I can say is that we have the best minds in the country working on it, including you know, the security services. Um, and we spend a huge amount of time, money, emotion, people um, to ensure that our systems are secure. Thank you. Uh, we've got another question from Anonymous. What role has the media played in encouraging or discouraging the proper use of statistics? Well, by and large, um, it, well, it varies a bit, and it depends what the statistics are. You know, there are always going to people, as I said earlier, people who will get hold of the wrong end of the stick if they can. And so there are one or two data sets that um, are very vulnerable to that. I think particularly of crime. So you'll have one newspaper that always wants to show that crime is going up. Um, and uh, it'll, uh, when we were putting out police recorded crime um, at the same time or giving it the same weight as the results of the crime survey, people could seize on police recorded crime and there were more police, so the crime appeared to be going up. Um, uh, I think that's about our presentation of the data. So you know, there, are, there are some very good examples. So the BBC, I think, is particularly good. They have a statistician who's in Robert Cuff and a team who work to ensure that statistics are presented objectively, um, and others too. So, and we've been, during the pandemic and actually during elections, we've sometimes embedded people into media organisations to ensure that the statistics are presented properly. But there are one or two exceptions. I suppose there always will be. Yes. <laughs> um, the final question that we got from, uh, from the audience, uh, and again, it's from Anonymous, it's a very wide one, which is, does ONS need reform and how? Well, it, I mean, the easy answer to that, say any organisation always needs reform. But, but the ONS is, is I think, uh, functioning, uh, is functioning well, it's working well. But there's, there is more to be done to help the different parts of the organization to work together, um, to take advantage of things like the integrated data service, uh, which I think ONS will be one of the leading users of. Um, and it can always be more outward looking and more flexible, more in contact with the outside world and its users. And that's, I hope, I hope my successor will continue to drive for that. That's possibly the, the perfect place for us to end. So thank you very much indeed, David. Um, that is it for today's event. Thank you all for joining us and for some brilliant questions as well. Uh, there are lots of other IFG events coming up over the next few weeks on everything from the good chap theory of the Constitution to interviews with Mayors Steve Rotherham and Tracy Brabin to how the UK can lead on green finance. Details of those all on the Institute for Government website. If you like IFG events about data, you can join us on Wednesday, the 6th of April, for the 28th edition of our Data Bytes event series. Sign up to the IFG newsletter for more on that. All that remains for me to say is um, enjoy the rest of your day, enjoy the rest of your week, and please join me in a huge virtual round of applause for our excellent speaker, our excellent guest today, Sir David Norgrove. Thank, Thank you very much, and goodbye. <laughs>